Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Experiments Web Clinic Audio Replay Podcast. Marketing Experiments is an internet marketing research laboratory. The web clinic you are about to hear was broadcast live to an international audience of marketing professionals. Sign up to be invited to future web clinics, as well as gain access to all of our online marketing research at marketingexperiments.com. Okay, good afternoon everyone. It's good to be with you. And it seems like just yesterday we hosted the last clinic and we're already on to another one. Today is unique. We're going to talk about how a single company generated $4.9 million in additional sales pipeline uh, in uh, just eight months. Now, depending on the size of your organization, $4.9 million might be a round-off error or it might seem like it's significant. What's more important is the ratio. There's a series of principles that we'll be talking about today uh, that are rich in terms of their ability to impact your conversion rate at a level that goes beyond what happens in the lead capture form. We're going to be talking about optimizing the lead itself. There's a lot of talk about optimization as it relates to the sign-up form or as it relates to the collateral and the channel. Uh, it might be your paid search, it might be your email, but many times, once we've done the heavy work necessary to capture a lead, we don't know how to bridge the differential between the lead's current state and the ideal thought sequence or mental condition that produces in that lead a sales-ready opportunity. Optimizing the lead is one of the most significant opportunities we have to capture new upside in uh, the coming months of this uh, year and into next. And we're going to be approaching it with several experts. If you're just joining us, you can talk about this uh, particular clinic on Twitter with hashtag WebClinic. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about the analysts and experts that will be involved. Uh, I'm joined by Brian Carroll. He's the Executive Director of Applied Research at McLabs. But Brian was also the founder of InTouch. Uh, candidly, we acquired InTouch some years ago largely because we were impressed with Brian and his team. We found that Brian, through his own research and through his own work, was arriving at conclusions similar to ours in the laboratory. Brian kind of rebelled against some of the popular notions about uh, the management of leads. He saw them as conversations, as people, and less as targets and numbers. And in doing so, he added the human touch to the process of lead nurturing. His book, Lead Generation for the Complex Cell, uh, was a bestseller in its category, and uh, it impressed me both in its grasp and in its perspective. Brian is now a part of our group overseeing all of our applied research, and he'll be speaking at length today, uh, providing with you insights that you probably never, ever received on a marketing experiments web clinic before. As you all know, marketing experiments, marketing Sherpa are part of the MechLabs family, they're our primary research units, and they feed into our other services provided in consulting and otherwise. We're also being joined by Spencer Whiting. Spencer is a, a research analyst in our team who oversees some of the largest projects uh, that we undertake, uh, some very significant projects, and is engaged in uh, a lot of research and was particularly instrumental in coordinating the case study that we're going to begin with right now. So I'm going to move swiftly into this case study and then before long bring Brian into the conversation. This is Test Protocol 1401. It is a consumer credit counseling service offering free debt consultation. 
Their goal was simple. They wanted to increase the amount of free debt consultation sign-ups without uh, additional traffic, without additional marketing spin. A primary research question, it was very simple. Which banner image will generate the highest completion rate? Now, you'll note that the completion rate extended beyond the banner, but all the way through as we tried to measure the impact of this change. It's an interesting test because it has to do with something quite visual in terms of imagery. We use a single factorial test design. Let's look right away at the control. For those of you that are familiar with our methodology, the control is the original page. The treatment is the new design. You're looking at the control. It says get relief from debt. It has a lot of best practices, and I want to say that in a new way, research best practices integrated into its design. I'm leery of best practices. I'm leery of the whole concept because it often means that you're going to do what somebody else in the industry is doing, which leads often to pooled ignorance. I don't want to have a world-class company. I want to have a company with a five-year sustainable competitive advantage and let the rest of the world catch up. Be leery of people touting best practices and world-class this and world-class that. In actuality, you want something that excels because if you don't exceed at least in one dimension of value, you won't have a value proposition. And if you don't have a value proposition, then you're simply surviving on pockets of ignorance. In this group, you can see from the button design that they're using some of the principles that we've learned through our aggregated testing. Uh, you can see that the form is simple. Friction has been reduced. There's strong credibility indicators, largely because they've been working with us in research for three years. So much of the work we've done with research partners that we often teach on these clinics that come to you, they grow out of the experiments that we do with organizations like you. We do experiments with our own, uh, you might say, lab conditions and variables. But we find that when we work with third parties in the private sector, there's a realism. There are CEOs who want results, who are you know, focused on the needle, and it brings a reality uh, it brings grounding uh, to our own experimentation, our own findings that we wouldn't get if we just stayed inside the science lab and didn't interact in the real world against real timelines. We've worked for years with this group. Spencer has uh, overseen a great deal of this, and this is the original comp. And Spencer, if you just want to give us a little bit of background on, on kind of how this test came to be. I'm going to show them the treatment in just a moment, but you might give us a little bit of background of, in terms of what happened behind the scenes that I can't see in the print uh, on the slide. Well, thank you, Flint. Uh, this banner here for this partner uh, was well tested. I think this is fourth or fifth generation for us in testing, and this was an image that was very successful for us as we went forward. Um, and so in our practice of, of testing for them, we're always looking to test for the next lift, and so we came up with this opportunity here to test a new image. So if you'd switch to that new image, what you see here is actually the CEO of the company. Uh, my first sense is that the CEO wouldn't necessarily provide a lift, but in this situation what you have is you have a, an industry that has high anxiety and credibility is very important for them. And so you have a CEO here who is willing to be out in front in front of his company uh, to say that we are different, uh, we are different than the other debt consolidation companies out there, and uh, we were very surprised by the lift that we uh, experienced with this, and uh, it was actually a great surprise. Before we go forward, you'll notice that the CEO's face has been blurred. Uh, there's not a problem with your screen. We're just protecting uh, or protecting the brand a bit here, both at the top and at various portions on this page. The key is to notice, as 
Spencer points out that we have changed primarily the image, and I think, Spencer, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks to me like there's wording on the image that identifies who this is within the organization. Exactly, Flint. Now, I want to point out for you that some of the best images on the web are those that employ captions. And in a sense, we've used a caption here to identify who this is so that uh, the messaging that, that uh, Spencer just talked about would be uh, emphatic in the design. Here are the results. What you can see is that the treatment produced a 35% increase in new leads. And uh, this was, uh, we were very happy with this. After three years of testing, uh, getting this kind of lead is, uh, lift is always uh, wonderful. The uh, client was uh, very satisfied with that. And it really shows what that credibility and the reduction of anxiety created for the visitor in wanting to get relief from debt. So uh, this made a significant difference in their business, and uh, they are continuing to see that uh, benefit. All right, so, so stand by, because you know this is about uh, lead generation, and what you've seen is standard fare for a MechLabs clinic. We've tested 10,000 landing page uh, paths, and at marketing experiments, you've, if those of you that have been subscribers for years have seen this type of thing over and over again. We're running tests right now, uh, capturing lifts uh, all across the marketplace. But this test is designed to set up something very important. This test is designed for you to, to ask a deeper question than the one that we asked at the beginning of the experiment. And it begins by noting some key principles that we're learning from all of this uh, research. And the first is this. Optimization does not stop with your online effort. Optimization is not an event. Optimization is a process. And it occurs from the first bit of content you develop down to the channel, across every stage of the funnel, and then, and this is the key and the point of this entire clinic, and then even after you've received the lead. So to ensure your optimization gains are not lost in the funnel, steps must be taken to optimize the lead itself after it's been captured and prior to passing it to sales. This is where Brian's expertise comes in. And this is why we've asked Brian to join us today because he's going to take us through a case study and show you how we went beyond the lead capture form and actually gathered the, 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 the highest possible yield for the lead itself. Now, let me just say this for those of you that are waiting to, uh, to get to the balance of this clinic. If you're in marketing on this call, perhaps you're not on the sales side, perhaps you're in the marketing side, you may share a common frustration with many of the members of our audience right now. It seems like you can work so hard to increase the number of leads, and then sales tells you that the leads are poor quality. Or you can work so hard to increase the quality of the leads, and then sales tells you, well, we don't have enough. And there seems to be, in many organizations we've worked with, a tension between sales and marketing. What Brian has done with his research over the years is brought harmony between the marketing group and the sales group. He's created almost a service contract between the two organizations, helped identify what a proper lead is, created something called a universal lead definition, and then optimized the lead itself until it met the criterion of that definition. He's an expert. And uh, I'm pleased to have him with us. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Flint. I'm really glad to be with all of you today. And, you know, I just wanted to start the premise. So as we talked about optimization um, and in the research that we've done, that the, the key is is uh, a lot of you are focusing on getting more leads and uh, turning up the 
quantity dial. And as uh, those of you who have attended past uh, web clinics, you've understood that we've talked about there's two dials. There's the quantity dial and there's the quality dial. What I'm going to be teaching you is that you are able to improve the quality of your leads, drive better conversion, and, and, and that's the objective of this particular experiment. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background. This is a B2B company. Um, we wanted to focus on B2B because often, since there's more people involved in the buying process, also the sales process is elongated, it's more complex. Those of you, though, who sell B2C, these same principles are transcendent, and they apply if you're selling to customers online and you're doing e-commerce. The difference is, is the tactics and cadence that you may employ, but the principles are the same. And um, what, what they really focused in on is uh, addressing some specific issues. They actually turned up their quantity dial. And so when we talk about the specific issues that they had, they were generating more activity. They, they had turned up and they were getting more web inquiries, but their overall sales results had remained relatively fat, flat. And what they were finding is they felt that these leads that marketing generated for their field sales and channel partners, that they were going into a black hole. And so when we studied the, the leaks in their funnel and, uh, and how we could optimize the process and optimize the leads, we saw less than 2% of their leads were actually converting to sales. So we also discovered there's no correctives in place for them to look at improving the process because sales did not get marketing feedback. And the bottom line is, is that they looked at their expense, but they couldn't tell us what the revenue was uh, because they weren't able to measure ROI. So here's the solution that we employed. And these are things that you need to get clear on, whether you're uh, B2B or B2C, is that we still need to generate leads. And the, the challenge is, is not getting clarity. If you're not the person who's owning the lead and following up generating it, and you have two or three or more people involved in the process, you have to get alignment. And what we found is this is a larger group. They didn't have a consensus on what the word lead meant anyway. Um, so because of that, Leads weren't qualified properly. They didn't even know what their quality dial should be, so they weren't prioritizing the best opportunities. The other thing is, is we discovered a lot of these leads had a longer buying process because of the content they were consuming. And so they needed to be nurtured, but the problem is, is none of them were being nurtured. Uh, so that the sales team, if someone was not, uh, didn't have all the forms, didn't download a demo, they in effect didn't pursue them because they knew most of the time they weren't going to be productive. And I want to show you uh, something which some of you may have seen before. Others of you, this is a new concept. Uh, I believe that we can optimize the process so that we are building a marketing pipeline. And most of us, most of you are familiar with the, the term sales pipeline or revenue pipeline or sales forecast. The difference is, is that above that, marketing can be run like sales and they did not have an effective marketing pipeline. There's a lot of things that I, I could point to, but um, what I would like you to do is pay attention that they had a marketing pipeline where most of their leads that were inquiries were immediately handed off to sales. And what we did that really made an impact is we put a nurturing process, which is we, we found that most of those leads didn't go anywhere because they weren't sales ready for the reasons we talked about. But by addressing this and adding a nurturing process, 
to optimize the leads so that they were sales ready, we were able to uh, drive some phenomenal results. And the, the results that we were able to drive was a 375% increase in sales ready leads, but we also were able to drive, by adding this process and these issues, 200% more opportunities in the sales pipeline. So they can now close loop in every sales lead. We took leads that were given to salespeople that were lost, ignored, and discarded, put them into a nurturing process. We'll talk a little bit about nurturing. I know uh, I, I can't see you, and I don't know how I'm doing with my pace. But what I want to make sure is that uh, that we're covering this to sufficient depth so this can be actionable for you. But at the same time, uh, I want to be able to move quickly. So let's talk about leads moving to pipeline or the sales opportunity rate. And, and that's where we're going to focus the next 30 minutes is on five steps to break this process down so that you can begin implementing it in your company quickly. The first step is that I want you to think about is if you're doing lead generation, be clear on when is a lead ready for sales engagement. If you're doing it online, when is it that you're offering pricing information? If you're doing it offline, in this case B2B, at what point do you engage your field sales team or channel partners or inside sales team to make the call? So let's talk about, uh, about that, that process. The, what you need to get clear on is your universal lead definition. And there's a spectrum of sales readiness. Um, level one is someone who raised their hand. Uh, and this is someone who responded to a campaign. And what you're looking to do is move them to level three, four, and five, which is that they are ready to move forward. Lead nurturing is about really addressing that second level, but you can apply it to optimize the lead throughout your whole process. And what I want you to pay attention to is you need to understand at what stage are you going to be engaging your sales organization or your sales messaging in the process. So let's, let's move into how you might uh, take this concept and actually apply it to, to the process. The probability and value, and if you have more of a complex sale and you're B2B, you're going to look at uh, the lead definition is going to help you look at what's the probability they're going to purchase and what's the likely value of that purchase. In fact, how, how big is the sale? Is this a pilot versus a rollout? Are you talking to an influencer or a decision maker? And there's lots of different things that you can be looking at that increase your probability. Their interest, their depth of interest, is there a trigger event present? Do they have a budget? The timing. Um, also, what the channel was that they used to inquire. But all these things can be factored in. And what I encourage you to do is to take this, this process here, this map, and start thinking about your own lead funnel. Now, moving on, I just want to say the key points. When you have a complex sale, if you can get more com uh, qualification information to salespeople, it increases the likelihood they're going to act on leads. And the asset test is, is for us to be 100% certain that when we give you a lead, that you will act on it and provide feedback. What are the must-have questions we need to have answered? That drives your universal lead definition. The other thing is, is bringing this universal lead definition to have standards and qualifying all your inquiries by that same standard will help you be able to measure what truly is your lead qualification rate. And then ultimately, when you're translating the lead to pipeline, you'll be measuring people by the same standard. Finally, for those of you who have a B2B uh, complex sale or field sales team, work in setting up a service level agreement between sales and marketing around 
what your universal lead definition is. So once you get this first step in place, it's qualifying leads based on your universal lead definition, and that's really step two. And what I want to uh, spend time here is qualifying leads based on your universal lead definition. What are the ways that you can do it? Well, there's a lot of ways of, of qualifying the process, but for this particular case study, what we looked at is their opportunity, in effect, before they implemented a universal lead definition and qualified against it, how many leads went to their pipeline. And it jumped from 4% to 12%, which was a 200% improvement. So when the more qualified you make leads, and in effect sending fewer of the more qualified leads to your sales channel, or making the offer online, that that impacted the lead conversion significantly. And the ones that didn't fit the universal lead definition, it's not a question of if they could buy, the organization is a fit or that individual is a fit is where they're put in the nurturing process, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So here's some different ways you can qualify leads with your universal lead definition. You're able to look at a lot of things. There's rules-based. So for online, do things with data, rules, content, and automation. So looking at the targeting, call to action, what pages do they visit, um, you can enhance your data to help you segment the, the list, applying lead scoring so that you're looking at what people put on the registration form. So that's explicit information. And implicit information is analyzing what people have engaged. So did they click on a link and uh, that we sent in an email? Were they on our website? You have analytics that can track that. And for more complex sales, uh, the next steps of qualifying is where you have phone qualification and discovery. And then ultimately, when those leads are, are uh, sent to sales ready, the sales team still qualifies to ensure that that's a viable opportunity, and, it, and they take them through a discovery process. So moving on, here's the key questions you need to answer. What's the required information for us to qualify leads? What's the nice-to-have rational information? And uh, then from here is, it's figuring out the priority we should give optional information. Uh, in your list of questions, you can test the sequence of qualifying questions you ask on your web form. You can, ask, you can test the sequence events with your calling guides and, and telemarketing scripts. The same with your sales team as well. These are things that can help improve your conversion, but make sure that you're answering those key questions. And what I want to do is, is just spend some time in, in recapping is that as you're qualifying, I find a gap, especially with online leads, is that there often is a need for telequalification to be a bridge. And so this group has obligations to both departments. Uh, at Mech Labs, we have a group that we actually have two groups that, uh, that do that and act as a laboratory, but that they are having an obligation to the marketing team and the sales team and what's happening is the feedback from telequalification from the field sales team goes back to improve the upstream practice. So we're looking to close the loop to understand um, what leads move forward and why and what leads didn't move forward and why. Um, what our research has shown and our testing has shown is typically one rep can support between two to four field sales reps effectively. But uh, if you have a consumer business and you're doing B2C, Generally, the call center is able to support a larger number of people uh, because you're, it's more transactional and there's less complexity in the customer buying process. But in B2B, this is what we found the, the right range typically is. So we've talked about two steps. Get clarity on the universal lead definition and then qualify your leads against it. 
So you must be asking, what do I do with the leads that aren't sales ready, that don't meet your universal lead definition? And this is the same thing that uh, this research partner did, is we said that's where you build your marketing pipeline to nurture the early stage leads until they're sales ready. What is lead nurturing? It's a consistent and relevant dialogue with viable potential customers. And I want you to pay attention when I say viable potential customers. If we treat leads as something uh, in that term, if I could change one word, I'd like to change the word from lead to future customer because I think we would treat our leads differently if we thought that way. So looking at viable potential customers regardless of their timing to buy. And by implementing this process, I want to show you the results of what they saw with their sales-ready lead difference. On average, they were averaging one touch from marketing. So if someone would fill out the web form, and they would get one response, which would be the confirmation email. And what we said is that that's not enough, um, and that was handed immediately to sales. We said that you should have uh, a minimum number of touches to really engage these early stage leads. And what we showed is that on average, when we got three or more marketing touches, including telequalification in that process, their lead volume with the same number of marketing-generated leads, the volume didn't go up, but when we studied sales ready, that jumped up 375%. And so holding leads back and nurturing them with relevant communication and multiple touches increased the conversion rate by 375% in eight months. We saw most of the yield happening somewhere between uh, touch number five and touch number eight. So what you can take away from this is if you're doing one and done, you need to uh, move on in that process. And this is the approach we took. This is a very simple process flow. It wasn't sophisticated. And this is something I think most of you can adopt. We segmented their, their lead lists for nurturing tracks. We looked at that person's role. We looked at their industry. We looked at the size of company. Then what we did is we structured email communications that relied on email and the phone to drive the conversion. Uh, so we had a send, and then based on engagement, a follow-up call would take place, which would send a follow-up uh, piece. And we don't have time to get into the script and, and see the, the actual uh, comps that were developed, but I want you to, want you to understand that it's a, a straightforward process, and our goal is to have at least one monthly touch. A key takeaway, though, is for, for B2B, uh, you're generally not just nurturing individuals, uh, you're selling to people. And the key takeaway is on the B2C side, you may have one or two people involved in the buying process um, when you're selling to consumers. And business to business, the average B2B transaction uh, over 5,000 has 5 to, tw to 25 people involved in the buying process. So think about not trying to build a big list with with your messages, but how do you build the most relevant list where you're going deeper with these companies when you have um, a, a more complex sale? And what, you, what I want you to pay attention to here is on the right, that's this very simple nurse plan that's going three contacts deep. So there is one for, for this company, for the CIO, the director of IT and IT managers. So they had three people that were key drivers in the process, and we developed content and a methodology to reach out by and, and let's go ahead and move on and, and talk about how you can apply these, these principles. Um, there's a lot of questions I'm sure you're going to have on, on lead nurturing. But what I want to do is just say that 
defining a handoff process with sales, the, the question here is at what point do we move marketing generated leads into our sales process and engage our sales team? And that was a question that you need to, uh, you need to answer to get there is this. Number one, is the lead sales ready? Um, that can be done a number of different ways that we talked about earlier. But if you have a field sales team or reps, inside sales reps, the number one question you're trying to answer is do they want to speak to a sales rep and to provide the qualification information in each lead. The other part is that you have to agree on a process. And I don't know how many of you watched the, uh, the last Summer Olympics, but the United States team was heavily favored to win the gold medal in the 4x100 relay. And what happened is, is that they lost the race. They didn't even finish. They were supposed to win the gold, but in both cases, the number one gold saver team lost because they dropped the baton. And uh, these are people who trained for years. So the key is, is you have to have a handoff process to know that no one drops the baton and be clear at who owns leads now and what process is happening. The third step is, is when someone is showing engagement that they are sales ready, to have a time limit on the turnaround once that lead is distributed. So timing is, is everything, and this is something you can test. But generally, we find that uh, sometimes 24 hours isn't fast enough. It needs to be minutes. And other times, 24 to 48 hours is the right number. But what you need to do is agree on what that process. And I want to briefly just show you what their process looked like. Yours could look different, but what, what's important here is marketing steps zero through step three and sales step one um, moving forward is that we had a key inflection point between when a lead was sales ready. That's when both hands are on the baton. And what you need to do is looking at your own process right now. At, at what stage is the right time to engage them with your sales messaging or make the offer? And to have your salesperson involved. And coming back, it's looking at your lead to opportunity conversion rate is one of your most important metrics. How many leads are moving to your pipeline? This helps you understand how well your sales team accepts and pursues leads. It ultimately shows if your leads are really helping your sales team sell. In other words, as I talked about the quality dial being turned up, you want to make sure that what you're doing is actually going to make a material difference in moving the sales needle. And so by us addressing this, we were able to more effectively close the loop because we knew that the sales team took them, and that's going to take us to the fifth and final step. Closing the loop with sales and marketing. Uh, when you have a more complex sale, I recommend having a process of huddling in place. And, and here's a quick agenda to go through. Um, the objective of the HUD is to review results, course correct, collaborate, future opportunities. But this is a time for the marketing team and sales organization to get together. Um, if you're managing a process where you own it from end to end, what your goal is is to analyze your conversion points, documenting your funnel from the marketing funnel to your sales funnel, and understanding that the key inflection points. But with a team, it's going to depend on who should be there when you have a, a team that's receiving leads. It's going to depend on the size of your company and uh, also by your service level agreement. So if you have a small team, it could be a simple, and you're all in one place, get together in an office and have a standing meeting. If you have a spread out team, and some of you are from very big companies, this is where using WebEx and, and conference calling 
go to meeting where you're having people virtually come in and the frequency of how often they should occur I say weekly feedback is ideal uh, daily feedback is is better but start with weekly and over time once this becomes indoctrinated you can start to rely on technology to help you capture this closed-loop data but it, until you get to that point uh, we found that huddling helps you get that feedback right away and apply that uh, that information to action so what I want to show you is a data report of what this might look like and the types of reports that you should be reviewing. So this is a, a monthly tracking report showing ROI. And what I wanted you to pay attention to is how you can close loop with sales and measure your sales ready leads all the way down to contract. Or again, if you have an e-commerce funnel or a, a, a lead gen funnel or you're doing subscription, this is going to look different, but this is for something where, uh, for this client, they were tracking a more complex sale. What we measured is the percentage of sales ready leads in play, how many of those converted opportunity went in the sales pipeline, how many of those went to proposed, committed, and there's three KPIs, key performance indicators you should track. Uh, what's your percentage of leads that move forward in your sales process? How many of those uh, have you provided pricing information to? And of those, uh, so that's your lead to proposal rate. And then your lead to win rate ultimately is, of the leads we generate, what's the conversion of those that actually move to revenue? And I want to show you taking this process with your touch points really briefly. If, um, closing the loop with sales would be such as this. If you have a universal lead definition, it's tying all your touch points together, tell us prospecting, email, webinars, online, web inquiries, measuring how many of those were sales ready and how those moved into your pipeline so that if you're using the universal lead definition, this gives you the clarity to know what channels you should be applying at what steps in the process. So, so to summarize, five steps. Um, refine your universal lead definition. If you don't have one, I recommend getting together with your sales team or start documenting one right now and uh, in uh, applying that process and engaging those who are receiving leads to do it. Qualify your leads based on that using some of the methodologies we talked about. Um, the ones that don't meet your universal lead definition, nurture them and tell their sales ready. And with this is where sales marketing alignment is very key, is having a clear handoff process and closing the loop and bringing all the pieces together. Let's just talk about the ROI impact. And I know we have a uh, uh, you probably have a lot of questions. I want to make sure we have ample time to answer them, both first case study as well as this one, is that they, they did have a complex sales. So their average sale is 100000 They took money that was being spent to generate net new leads and applied 25% of that budget going further with the leads they already had. So in other words, they didn't spend any money. They just used the money they had already in a different way to go further with leads they already had. And that drove a 305 75% growth in sales-ready leads, 200% growth in their lead-to-sale pipeline rate, and they saw 4.9 uh, million in, in additional sales pipeline growth in eight months. And actually, when we measured it, it kept growing and growing and growing. So quarter and quarter, uh, it was significant growth. And the bottom line is, is they reduced their expense that was spent on marketing to the top line revenue that was being generated. So what I wanted to do is just come to a few uh, most important point, points for you to capitalize on, and then we're going to go to Flint, and, and we'll just see what kind of questions we have. I know we have a number of them. Is 
to capitalize on these opportunities, get your universal lead definition in place. Um, remember that nurturing isn't about sending more marketing messages more often. What it's really about is maintaining a relevant dialogue, meaning this means something to them, that you're really connecting to add value in the process. And uh, you're doing it on a consistent basis, which means you're having regular touches. So this is a one-and-done process. With, so maintaining relevant, consistent dialogue with viable potential customers, regardless of their time to purchase. Um, if you don't measure lead opportunity or lead to pipeline or lead to shopping cart conversion rate right now, uh, those are things you should be looking at and so you're, because that shows how many people are moving into your actual sales process. And in my opinion, that's one of our most important metrics to show how well the leads you generate are contributing to sales. Finally, if you're trying to measure cost per lead and you don't have uh, clarity around your universal lead definition, you're getting skewed numbers. Uh, it's most certainly skewed uh, because you're not using a universal standard. Um, you could unless you understand the other impact, and that's why cost per lead uh, isn't the most important metric. It helps, but you have to pair that with cost per pipeline or cost per opportunity. So that's all I had to share with you today. We covered a lot. But the, if you apply these five steps in, in the sequence that I proposed, uh, this is something that we wanted to do is give you ideas to equip you. And uh, I'm going to hand back to Flint, so thank you again. All right, before I even... Before I even get started, uh, a couple of key points. Number one, uh, Austin just uh, pressed for me to remind you that tomorrow is the cutoff for uh, the, I guess it's a significant savings to register for the Optimization Summit. This is the first. You may know that we do many summits in different places. We've got one coming up in Germany, and we just did the big summit for email in Las Vegas. But we've never done a summit specifically focused on optimization. And so from our experimentation with 10,000-plus paths and bringing alongside from our scientists and analysts uh, some of the leading experts around the world and lots of practitioners who are trying to fix their own processes, we've put together, I think, the most unique summit we've ever designed. I don't have any sales presentation or pitch. It's very simple. We say often clarity trumps persuasion. If you want to learn how to optimize an environment and interact with a community of experts, this is the chance that you can do that. And uh, this is the slide that kind of lays out the details. And you can go to the website uh, URL down below to get more information. The big key is that uh, they've asked me to, to kind of remind you today that uh, this is where the early bird discount uh, is right now for that summit. So let's move on. Brian, join us. Let's talk uh, about some of the questions that have been asked. If you're new to a, to a marketing experiments web clinic, then... This is a little atypical today. Uh, it's different in that uh, we have a pretty detailed and intense bit of teaching on the lead optimization side for the work that Brian Carroll has been doing. And Brian, as you probably can tell, is an expert whose greatest challenge in teaching today is figuring out what not to say because he has far more content than we can possibly cram into the amount of time that we've had. Has this been helpful for you? If so, would you tweet it and let us know or use the Q&A feature in the um, – uh, go to meeting interface so that we can uh, get your comments and get your feedback and keep optimizing the experience that we're providing for you. Now, as we're doing that, though, we're going to take questions from our audience. So let's look at the first question. It says, uh, in a lengthy sales cycle, how many touch points do you suggest and at what frequency? This is a question from Rona. And Brian, what would be your answer to that question? Well, Rona, that's. Uh 
I would say right now I would start with uh, looking at uh, a touch point. I'm thinking for a moment because some of the I have a lot, number of questions. What are you selling? <laughs> Who are you selling to? How many people are involved in the buying process? So uh, that that's a bit of my hesitancy. Here's here's what I would say. Generally speaking. Um, if your sales cycle is three to four months, and I would look at before that, before someone is interested in your sales cycle, I would uh, recommend at least uh, a touch every two to four weeks with your audience. So in this case, I would say at least three touch points, but you, have, you also have to buffer that with uh, what would be relevant to your audience and how frequently can they and will they find valuable to hear from you. Um, we've tested where it could be uh, weekly uh, and that that's been the right number. So I'd encourage you at, at least um, without knowing anything more, I would say once a month. But uh, you could definitely shorten that. I encourage you to test it and look at your engagement with emails or whatever touches you're doing to look at open rate and click rate. Clint, do you have any thoughts? Yes. I would say this, there is a nexus in terms of the thought sequence. As you know, I approach optimization through the thought sequence, and I ask myself the question always through the perspective of the person who's interacting. And there are two questions at every point uh, of the optimization cycle related to a lead that connect to the uh, external, and I'll tell you how they come together. Two internal questions, and then uh, there's an external event. And if you can imagine those three triangulating in your mind, when all three come together at the proper intensity, you have a sales-ready lead. The first question is, can they? The second question is, will they? And the third point on the triangle is uh, an urgent event or need or trigger. Let me explain what I mean by can they and will they. Can they is a capacity question. Do these people have what it takes? Do they know what it takes? Can they perform what I need done for a solution? The second question, will they, is actually a, a trust issue. Will these people do what they say they will do? Even if they have the capacity, will they do it? Because there are many organizations out there that, can, that could do it, but once you've talked to the top consultant, you're now handed down to a bunch of junior consultants who actually don't care, and you can't actually get the service that you expected. When you're devising touch points, when you're putting together content that is sent out on a nurturing cycle, you have two initiatives that should be driving how you define what that content is. The first is to demonstrate that you can. And the second is to demonstrate that you will. In other words, you're building trust. During this cycle of building the sense of trust and at the same time a sense of competency, there comes a nexus in the form of an opportunity, a trigger event where they need your service. At the precise moment where there is enough trust, there is enough competency, and there is the trigger event, you have a sales ready lead. So thinking about what it will take to answer those two questions will establish in large part the frequency level. Sending information because you heard on the clinic that you should do it once every two weeks is not enough. You're liable to send them information that doesn't answer either of those two questions. In fact, I would say much of the information I see in a nurturing track is useless to my present need, doesn't demonstrate that you can, and doesn't demonstrate that you will. I want both kinds of information sent to me at proper frequency so that at just the right time when I need a solution, 
I have someone who I believe can and someone who I believe will. Uh, that's my elongated answer, Brian. <laughs> so we go to another. All right. So I'm looking at the second. It says, when is the best time in the B2B nurture cycle to give a quote or detailed pricing information? This is from uh, Sandra. Go ahead, Sandra. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> I love to hear Sandra's answer. Sandra, if you'd like to jump in and correct us, be, feel free. We need a lot of help here. But uh, in, the, in the absence of your expert opinion, we'll default to Brian. Go ahead, Brian. Okay. Pricing info is uh, first measuring engagement. As Flint talked about in his earlier question, he, he almost helped me answer this, which is looking at the, the conversion sequence. There, there is a, a research that you are, uh, we've done testing where uh, pricing information early in the process is what's needed to, to actually drive lead conversion. Um, in other stages, it's given at the, le the later process. If you have a complex sale, I find that um, in, in the B2B side, and I'm assuming it's complex, that often you aren't able to give a quote or detailed pricing information until you've done some level of discovery. Um, unless you, what you're selling is fairly commoditized. And so this is where I, I find that that generally happens at the end of the process, and uh, this is where you need to be profiling the, the future customers or leads as you optimize them to profile the, are they a fit and can they engage you um, because ultimately you may have a number of people you could be nurturing that ultimately aren't able to buy. And so that's getting clarity on, on who it is that you're selling to, profiling your database, and then ultimately we find with B2B, it's the end of the, of the process this is often presented. But as, as I said earlier, if it's a, a more transactional B2B, in other words, it's a $5,000 sale or less, um, and it's less of a consider purchase, you may find that that's earlier uh, because people are price shopping and they're doing comparison information, and that would be the appropriate time for them to raise their hand, and, and you would put some construct around it. Flynn? I would only nuance Brian's answer by suggesting that in the thought sequence, there's two, there's, there's two phases of the price question, and there's a subtle difference between the two. The first question is, can I pay for this? And the second question is, will I pay for this? In the first question, they're trying to establish at least a range to see if you're a, a potential solution and that price range is part of a whole general set of criteria that's in their mind to determine whether or not you might be the answer. If you're a smaller company who couldn't contemplate a $1.5 million solution and you need to spend under $150,000 and you see something that's remarkable and you're interested and you honestly can't tell whether that service cost you $100,000, $500,000, or a $1 million, you're trying to get a general sense of the price range. But until you're at the point where you feel the acute need, Along with the acute need, there's the nexus between will they and can they. Until you get to that point, we don't really need to answer precisely how much does it cost. Now, this is a general statement. It must be tested. I think it's helpful in the earlier stages to help people establish the price range that you're within. I think it's also harmful to get too detailed about pricing before you have details about their needs. And so be careful that you don't weigh in hard and direct and specific with cost before you've weighed in hard and heavy with value. And that's in the nurturing cycle. 
So um, if that helps some, I'd like to, I'll move to the next question. And Sandra, if we got it wrong, just write us and tell us, okay? All right. <clears throat> so I, I go to the third. Would you also cover strategies to generate new leads from scratch? This is from Pedro. And, and honestly, um, I think we have to answer that one by deferring to some of our earlier clinics on lead generation and lead capture. Uh, I also would suggest uh, that uh, in this day and age, uh, a content strategy tends to be one of the most important ways to start developing a strong lead pipeline. And there's more research we're doing in that area and more work we're doing, and we'll share more about that as the research here unfolds. But in the meantime, Pedro, if you would write here uh, your email address into one of our key leaders, we'll send you some links to some of our most important articles about lead generation itself and talk to you about how you might develop leads from, from scratch. With that in mind, uh, we've got questions that are coming in across Twitter and, and uh, into the Q&A function. Here is, um, here is uh, a question from Doug. It says, how do you transition from uh, touch to nurture, or for one touch to actual nurture? There will, uh, and it says, or the nurture, I can't read it, uh, Austin. Uh, for those of you that have joined our audience, Austin is, um, is a brilliant producer, but he, he writes like a physician, and I can't understand his writing. <laughs> Read it to me, friend. <laughs> you go ahead and read the question. I think it's in Sanskrit to, 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 in deference to Austin. So he says, uh, this is from Doug, how do you transition from one touch to nurture? Uh, won't there be a point where the nurture time will result in all the leads in nurture? I, I got it. Go ahead, Brian. All right. So uh, what I would say is, is uh, you're right. That, that, that that's a valid point. Um, in, this, in this particular case study I shared today, 60% of their leads actually went to nurture. Um, we were disqualifying about 30% uh, of their leads because they weren't a fit. And uh, it was competitors, their own partners, people. It was surprising how many irrelevant inquiries they're getting on their website. And so uh, you're going to have a percentage of leads that um, I, I would expect the majority of them would move to nurture if you qualify your leads based on your universal lead definition. The point of nurturing is to progress these early stage leads in your marketing funnel, though, to become sales ready. So even though that number grows, what you're really looking to do is increase, and, and this is all about optimizing the lead and optimizing the marketing funnel to improve the performance of your sales funnel is that your goal is, is nurturing is about progression, and you're looking to build momentum. So that's where Flint talks about the, the thought sequence. So your, your point is well taken, but to start this process, I would encourage you, there's, um, uh, in, in I, Flint, frankly, I think that's the topic of future webinar, is, uh, is uh, for us to do a case study on, on how to implement a lead nurturing program, just that one area. But um, oh, yeah. so I, I won't dive in much further than that. I would just say sequence the series of touches that you think are relevant. And, uh, again, I would encourage you to test and start with what you know from your customers and, and understanding their buying process. That really needs to be key. Let me encourage you to, if you're listening to all of this and you, and you look at your current system and you say to yourself, you know, we're so far away from ideal that it's almost discouraging trying to figure out how we're going to get where we need to be from where we are currently. 
I just want to share with you because we look on the inside of major companies all over the world. And frankly, almost everybody is far away from ideal. And you have to start where you are, work this out in phases, take what you can and begin to implement it over time. And you've got to give yourself enough time. Sometimes we're too urgent. Too, everything has to happen fast. We live in a world where we're, we're driven by deadlines and we don't understand that some processes like this, which could revolutionize our company, they're not going to be done in 90 days. They're not going to be done in 180 days. You can, you can get phase one underway. You can get progress. You can even move the needle. But some of us need to really stop and, and step out of this uh, short-term tactical thinking and ask to our, ourselves a simple question. How can we build a growth engine in the heart of our operation that will take, nurture, and establish fully optimized funnel end-to-end so that our leads are high quality and even the, the, the earliest processes in content development are done with a strategic view of the entire funnel. If you can implement what I'm talking about right now, you can build sustainable competitive advantage that will give you years ahead. A competitor cannot come along and easily duplicate a system of this magnitude. So, I want to thank you for joining us today. And uh, I want to suggest to you that... Um, if there's more that we can do to help you, contact us. Uh, if, uh, if you want to get some more time to get expertise or advice from Brian or the lead generation group within Mech Labs, there's a link on your screen that you can utilize to do so. It's the marketingexperiments.com forward slash partners. Also, don't forget the summit that's coming up, and we'd love to get your feedback on this particular clinic. It's different than our average web clinic, and it's quite dense with new information. Tell us if it was helpful for you today. We'd love to get your thoughts. Lastly, we don't charge for this research. It's been years now. It's hard to believe how long we've been doing this. And there's 15 or $20 million worth of research now on the Marketing Experiments website that you can get at no cost. We would, however, ask you to share this resource with a friend. Invite somebody else to the clinic. Invite somebody else to the website at Marketing Experiments where they can subscribe and get access to all our clinics and information, and we would be most grateful. Thank you again, and we'll be back with you soon with more of our research findings. Thank you for listening to this recording of a Marketing Experiments live web clinic. You can sign up to receive invites to future live web clinics, as well as receive access to $10 million worth of Internet marketing research at marketingexperiments.com. Thank you.